This episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who donated $1 a month through Craft Sanity's Patreon page. Learn more at CraftSanity.com. Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy, here's something amazing to help you keep it together. One, two, three, craft sanity, craft sanity. Hello and welcome to episode 190. On this episode, I am going to be talking to origami artist Stacy Tamaki. She creates the coolest folded paper creations. And what is really unusual about Stacy's work is she's working tiny, very tiny. A lot of origami artists use a six inch square of paper. She uses pieces of paper that are about an inch and a half square. And she challenges herself to even go smaller than that. So when she's folding, you it almost looks like, you know, you can't see anything because the paper is so small. Uh, so I think you're going to enjoy this interview. I am kind of building on the first interview that I did last month that was a video interview. And I had a little write-up on my blog. I'll link to that at craftsanity.com so you'll be able to find it. So you can actually, I do encourage you to look at the video because it's really interesting to see Stacy's work. You can hear about it, but until you see it, it's just it sounds kind of unbelievable that someone could fold paper this small and have it actually resemble the intended critter that you're trying to replicate. So now is a good time to settle in with a drink and a project and get ready to be entertained. But before you do settle in, I want to tell you about a new sponsor that's come on board here at Craft Sanity. And I'm really excited about it because um, I recently gave up drinking Pepsi, my crimp tonight. I'm trying to kick it because it's just really not good for me. So I'm living off water, fruit smoothies, and tea. A lot, a lot of tea. So when Andy from PlumDeluxe.com contacted me about sponsoring the show, I was like, wow, this is like perfect timing because this is not, you know, me just selling out to a sponsor here, folks. I'm really living off of tea. One of the cool things about what Andy does is he's built this handmade business where he is specializing in organic loose leaf tea blends. So he's blending flavors together and offering a really cool tea of the month club that delivers these teas to your door. And one of the things that he stresses is it's just not as simple as getting tea in the mailbox. It's really a community with a lot of perks. And this is how Andy describes his tea of the month club. So you can visit plumdeluxe.com slash tea for more information on the club. And yeah, so check things out. And I am just very, very excited to have a new sponsor on board. 
thank you, Andy. He has definitely shown some love to Craft Sanity. And I invite all of you to maybe show him a little bit of love back and go visit PlumDeluxe.com and check it out. Tell him Jennifer sent you. I just want to also take a moment to thank my Patreon sponsors who have basically been riding this wave with me for a long time. And I really do appreciate it. Thank you to each and every one of you. All right. So let's get to that show. Grab some tea and a project. And here we go. Stacy, welcome to the podcast. I think this is really fantastic to get a chance to talk to you without people swirling around trying to see your work <laughs> at Art Prize. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. We met through Art Prize, um, the big uh, competition going on right now in Grand Rapids, where you are exhibiting your work. It's a three-piece mobile that, and I'll let you explain, you know, we'll give people, those who haven't seen the YouTube video, we'll assume that they need a little background on what your, what your entry is all about. So if you could explain that, that would be wonderful. Sure. I specialize in creating miniature origami pieces. So where a standard origami sheet of paper is typically six inches by six inches, I fold that in quarters and cut it, then take one of the quarters and fold that in quarters and cut it. <laughs> and I end up with a one and a half inch square that when you fold it down into most of the origami models becomes a three quarter inch high finished model. And so that is my favorite size to fold. And my favorite thing to do with them is to put them into sets of 1000. And then I create kind of, I call them sculptural structures that help carry the theme of what I want that particular set of cranes to convey. Mm -hmm. And at this point, for three consecutive art prizes, my themes have been focused on Japanese culture. So um, it's different color palettes and, and different creative ideas for the structures. And it's just really fun to make. I chose um, three more cultural aspects that it's it's just fun because some people will be familiar with them and other, other visitors to Art Prize won't be. You know, it'll be a new thing for them mm -hmm. to learn about. And this year I chose to portray, it's a children's fable that I remember from when I was a little girl. We had a Japanese um, children's storybook. And it, it's a story called The Moon Rabbit. And the, the purpose of the story is to teach children like altruism and selflessness. And when people in Japan look at the moon, they don't see a man in the moon. They see a rabbit in the moon. And there's a couple different shadowy kind of configurations in the patterning of the moon mm -hmm. where you can see a rabbit. One, it's kind of leaping, and one, it's um, holding a mallet. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, well, I don't know which to choose between the two. So instead, I, I hand-painted onto my moon kind of a stylized, version of the origami rabbits that I had folded and hung beneath them. And then the second mobile is focused on bonsai, which is often um, mistakenly called bonsai, which is the, I think, the suicide call of kamikaze pilots from oh, World no. War II. And so um, I thought, I'll, I'll do the tree, and then I can... Um, introduce people to the proper pronunciation of the word is like bone sigh instead of bon zai. Yeah, because those are wildly and different so, meanings, my word. Yeah, the meanings are so vastly yes. different. Um, but the trees are beautiful. And there is a like a West Michigan bonsai club here in this area that I'm aware of. And, and I was just tickled to bits to see a display of them at the, the New Meyer Japanese Garden last year. So they were on my mind, and um, and so I thought to do that. 
And then third is, is the frog, which is a good fortune frog that um, a lot of people in my family and extended family believe they bring, you know, good luck and good and more money, like if you go to a casino. So I folded origami frogs that they keep in their wallets and purses and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> Altogether, it's a beautiful, beautiful display. And it's, I mean, it's rather, it's small because, I mean, you're, you're, we're talking, you're going to have upwards of 3,000 pieces. I know you're adding to it this week, but it's pretty compact. I mean, when people see just how tiny these <laughs> these pieces are that you're folding, and I know you showed me a Ziploc bag when I was visiting, of, and there, you said there were 150, I think, rabbits you had in there. Right, tiny <laughs> and, rabbits. And I was like, oh my goodness. I mean, because it didn't, it wasn't, it was probably about half full, maybe a quarter full. I don't know. It, it, it was, you know, yeah, it's, they're just so I, I think small. it was probably about a quarter of a cup or less, yeah, between an eighth oh and a quarter gosh, of a cup, yeah. like a measuring cup's worth. Um, and it was 150 to three-eighth inch high origami bunnies. <laughs> oh, my word. Well, and the thing that's so amazing about it, because I was watching you, you were folding, um, I think you were doing, you were making a frog uh, for someone who had come up and asked you some questions. And uh, it was even uh -huh. hard to photograph because you're you're folding with your hands. I mean, you're not using like tweezers or anything like that and it almost like disappears in your hands and then reemerges. It does. It's like a magic trick. I, <laughs> I, I, I like to hide what I call the tinies in, into the mobiles each year um, where I, the first year I, I had hidden some three-eighth inch high cranes and kind of piggybacked them on the backs of some of the cranes in, in the first set. And then last year dawned on me for the first time ever in over two decades, really, to even try to fold them smaller. And I ended up with three one-quarter-inch high finished cranes. Oh, my word. And so a group of people had come in, and this, this man was so funny, and he's asking me, you know, do you use tools? And, and I said no. And he said, well, I'm, I just can't believe you did that with no tweezers unless I watch you fold one. <laughs> and so I folded so I cut a half inch square of paper and I'm sitting here folding it and I think there's about a dozen people gathered around at that point and I'm holding it up for them to try to show them each fold but it's so tiny no one could even see the fold <laughs> and at the end I, I had him open his palm and I put it in his hand and he's looking at it he's like yeah I, I still don't I, I don't believe you can do this <laughs> goodness so, so pretty funny so you're being challenged a little bit well it is i mean it really, oh yeah it really is unbelievable though when you watch and i even watched it and i was just like oh my word because i know i mean i work small with you know things like embroidery and you know tiny little stitches but to fold paper and get it to do what you want it to do that small um so do you have to have um, your fingernails longer i mean is that what you're using is your your nails to kind of help i need um just a little tiny bit of fingernail. I don't need long fingernails, but if I break it all the way down to the base, then it's more problematic because I have to shift and try to use a different finger that's not natural to right. use in that position. Right. It works, but it, it just makes it harder. Um, but I, I tell people with the three-quarter inch size cranes, I, I pretty much have 100% success rate you know, doing those. But with the little quarter inch high pieces, it's it's fingers, a little fingernail, and hope and luck. Because <laughs> my success rate is lower. It's probably more like, I don't know, maybe 75% at this point. Um, so they don't all come out good. Yeah. They come out recognizable as a crane or a frog, but they don't 
they're not perfect. And the tiniest quarter inch frogs, I do have to use tweezers to do those because their little legs are just so itty bitty. When you get something that small, I mean, where do you put it then? Like when you're storing those, I mean, do you just have them in Ziploc bags or do you have a special vault of the, <laughs> a tiny little <laughs> I need a vault. Tre- treasure chest? <laughs> uh, you know, and I guess the good thing is even if one doesn't turn out, you're not wasting tons of paper. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, this year I, I stepped up and bought like little Tupperware containers. And as I fold my thousand, I just keep adding them into the container. And yeah. I keep a little sheet of paper. And at the end of every day, I write down how many more I'm adding to the total um, till I, I get them done. But the last couple of years, I just fold them and throw them into large Ziploc bags. You have logistical things to think about that people who work larger you know, you could lose like 150 cranes really easily if the bag gets, can you tell I misplaced things all the time? <laughs> I'd be like, <laughs> I'd be like, oh my gosh, I just lost 300 cranes. <laughs> Have you seen them? Yeah, that is the danger because my materials are so small and the finished product is so small that it's, it's really easy for me to be mobile and fold on location anywhere. Yeah. So if I travel by car or by plane even, I'm always bringing, you know, pieces with me. And so I could be, you know, carrying 300 frogs with me at a given time or or that many cranes at a given time, you know, by the end of a, a vacation or something. And I do, I worry about them. Um, like I won't leave them in the car if I go stop at a store or something. I keep them in my purse because if my car gets stolen, I can get another car. But it's like, no, I don't want to lose all this work I put into oh these. <laughs> so I keep them safe with me. <laughs> Which, I mean, but when you think about it, for those for those listening to this and thinking, okay, these paper cranes are worth more than our car. To put that in context for people, 300 crane or just how long does it take so people get an idea of when you're carrying around a bag of 300 cranes how many hours did you have into that that work it really varies based on what kind of paper i use to fold them because some of them are easier to fold the thinner crisper papers are quite easy to fold um, and i can fold them quickly and for hours and hours and hours and my arm doesn't get sore at all but anything that's a thicker, heavier paper, the Japanese washi paper, or sometimes I use handmade papers, um, those I can only fold for about 20 minutes. It takes longer to fold each one, and then my arm gets tired. My hands never get tired, but kind of like right you know, behind your wrist, the front part of the forearm, mm-hmm. there's a tendon there, and that tendon will get sore. So then I have to take more breaks in between, and it just drags the whole process out further. But um, part of the reason for that also is my car isn't worth very much. It's really old. (laughs) So I don't worry about the car as much. (laughs) Yeah. Well, hey, it gets you where you need to go. And, you know, it gets the the precious cargo um, to the destination here. So um, with the the paper, going back to the, you said the crisper paper is easiest to fold. What what is your favorite, absolute favorite paper to to fold? Oh, that's, that's like... It depends on what day or hour you ask me. (laughs) I have so much paper. I have a drawer full of paper. And then I have all these big, like, you know, um, mailing tubes Mm -hmm. full of large sheets of papers, um, all separated by colors. And it really, it's like asking, well, I guess some people probably have an all-time favorite song. But for me, my favorite song, it it just depends every day. Right. Um, (laughs) Me too. I I'm probably drawn more towards the prints of certain papers, the color combinations, mm-hmm. than the actual type of paper. 
unless you're talking about a really beautiful handmade paper. Like there's one that I used in a an autumn themed set of cranes that it's like an orangey red, very soft, pulpy, thick, hard to fold paper that has gold fibers running through it. And it's just, it gleams, you know, it's just beautiful. So that's probably one of my all-time favorites. And it doesn't make the prettiest cranes because it's so thick. The crane isn't real crisp and refined looking, but the paper is gorgeous. Do you work with paper that has prints on both sides or is it just printed on one side? Most of the paper is just printed on one side. Every now and then I'll stumble upon a package where it's a solid color on the other side. And I think I've only ever once bought one where the back side is like a polka dot, a pink background with a white polka dot print on it. But for the most part, they're, they're usually um, either plain or if you buy some of the finer Japanese, um, you know, origami papers, it's the color is all the way through the paper. So you don't have two different colors. It's I just... See. It's like saturated. Fabric, like a red sheet. Yeah, it saturates to, to the other side. Now, I know that in uh, big box craft stores, they have like endless supplies of like scrapbooking paper. And for people who are just getting into like want to try to, you know, just start folding themselves. Um, do you, I mean, is that a paper you would recommend or is, I mean, do you ever use that just regular scrapbooking paper or are you using special, specially it's- papers most of the time yeah the scrapbook paper can definitely be used probably for larger models but because it's so much thicker than the standard origami paper um i personally have never used scrapbooking paper for for my work it's just harder to fold and again you don't get the real clean crisp lines right most of those stores will sell packages of of the origami yeah i've seen it i've definitely Um, seen it so people it sounds like it's worth it's worth the just buying the package of paper that's actually designed for this kind of folding to get the most yeah, satisfying it, results. It's completely different. The the texture and weight of it will be completely different. Okay. Um, well, that's good to know. So, and then if people want to try to use up some of their scrapbooking stash, <laughs> they can experiment on their own, but it, it would probably be good yeah. to, to try with um, some paper that's actually designed for that purpose. And, and, and I, Oh, I was just say I would recommend if they want to use a scrapbooking paper or like copy paper or something like that. I would probably not try to do anything smaller than a five or six inch square mm-hmm. because then the larger the model is, the easier it'll be to fold with a thicker paper. Right, that's a good point. Now, when you started yourself, this goes back for you at least a couple of decades. It sounds like you got it. When did you get into this, and what um, first in- inspired you to start folding? Well, what. What I recall, and it's it's one of my just favorite memories, is that my grandma, who had immigrated from Japan to the United States, um, she never learned to read or write in English, and she really didn't learn to speak a lot of English either. Um, but she was just a sweet, kind woman. And one day, I remember sitting on the front porch with her, and she taught me how to fold a crane. I had a blue piece of paper. It was the prettiest blue, and, and and that's that's the day I learned. And I'm guessing I was probably like I don't know, maybe seven or eight, because she passed away when I was ten after mm. a long illness. Yeah. So I know I was quite young yeah. when, when she taught me. Um, and then it was just something I always knew how to do. And you know, a few times a year I'd make one here or there, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But then years later. Um, a relative got married, and 
everyone in the family kind of chipped in and, and 10 of us folded 100 cranes each so that she could have 1,000 cranes to symbolize good luck at her wedding. And we used large six-inch standard squares of paper and, and hung them as a mobile. And I just thought, this is so beautiful. I would want to display it, but it would get dusty. It would get damaged, you know, over time. And so then I just, one day, the idea just popped in my head in the early 90s. Um, how small can I fold a crane? And how small would you have to fold a crane to fit a set of a thousand hung as a mobile inside one of those tiny um, Japanese doll glass cases? And so I just started cutting paper and folding it smaller <laughs> and smaller until I came up with that size. It was just tickled that it could be done because um, I wasn't even sure it could be done when I first had the idea which happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's fun to try things and you obviously have perfected this because yeah. your installation is beautiful. And so when you started this, you know, the the wedding happened, that was about what, like 20 years ago or how long, how long ago was that? Oh yeah. More than 20 years ago. Okay. More, I, I honestly don't remember exactly when she got married. No, but, it's, um... it's, that's totally fine. I'm just trying. And, and at that point you weren't living, you weren't living in Michigan at that point. So, so... no, I was living in, California then or gosh I no, I might have been living in Washington State then it was so long ago but it was when I was living in California that the idea dawned on me of doing them smaller so I want to say it was I think 95 okay. when I made my first tiny set and it's at my mom's house in a glass display case and it's a set um, of a thousand is that and it's a set of a thousand and um, last year at Art Prize, I brought the second set I ever made that same year because the first year, quite a few people had asked me about, well, what is the longevity of a piece like this? Because it's so delicate and, you know, and so I incorporated the second set of cranes I ever made <laughs> into my entry last year. And it was so neat to be able to tell people, well, this set is actually 20 years old. And their jaws just dropped because it looked just as brand new as the other three I had made over the course of the past you know, 10, 11 months. Right. So it is just keeping them protected out of direct sunlight so the paper doesn't fade. And um, well, in California, I didn't have to worry about moisture. I worry about that a little bit more here in right. Michigan with the humidity possibly damaging or warping the paper. But um, I think it'll be okay. Yeah, well, that's really great that they last that long and it, it makes sense. I mean, if you take care of it, that they'll go a long time. So for you, I mean, did you grow, what state did you grow up in? Where, where did you? Spend... I grew up in Washington state in Eastern Washington, right near the Idaho border. And then, and then moved to San Jose, California in my twenties. And did you go there for school or what led you to California? No, I got married and, um, he was finishing school down there and then I got divorced, and he left and went back to Washington. And I was like, I like it here. So I just stayed there. Oh. <laughs> and I stayed there for 27 years. So you really liked it there. Yeah. yeah. I did. I, I didn't know much of the Bay Area, to be honest. It was just kind of a, you know, get up, go to work in the morning. I worked um, retail. I worked at Nordstrom in retail sales. And, um, and you know, go home. And then years later, I started my own business making custom couture bridal accessories 
of all the, the bizarre things to do for a living. Um, and because of that business, I finally had to get in my car and drive an hour up to San Francisco and <laughs> buy supplies. And I ended up with two wholesale accounts up there and then started going to wedding networking event kind of things. And the next thing I knew, I knew San Francisco pretty well, not back of my hand well, but really well. Mm-hmm. And then I started blogging and became more adventuresome and started going, you know, up to wine country and down to Santa Cruz and to the beach and it, just exploring the whole greater Bay Area. And it it just changed my life. It just opened my eyes to possibilities and, and how much people miss out on because we get so comfortable of the, you know, going from home to work and to our five favorite restaurants. And instead of driving one block further and trying a different restaurant, you know, we just go back to the same one all the time. My art is kind of like that, where I, I, I push myself now and I try to stretch and use different materials. Like the whole art prize thing is really a great exercise in creativity for me because it's given me the opportunity to explore materials and come up with techniques and try to defy all of the problems that I read other people have with a, a medium, mm-hmm. you know, online and come up with a solution to make it work for my project. Um, so that it makes it challenging and fun at the same time. Right. Cause I mean, you have a moon that you made and that's, well, how did you make the moon in your, cause you have the, the rabbits are hanging from the moon and right. what is the moon constructed <laughs> out of? That, that has, um, an eight inch styrofoam ball like a sphere underneath it. But I was able to find not a solid styrofoam ball. I found like two halves of a sphere that are hollowed. So it's shaped like a bowl. Oh yeah. And then you can glue them together. And so that made it perfect because then I could run um, head pins, jewelry making head pins up through the styrofoam to the inside and bend them to lock them in place. Oh, yeah. To create the little loop that I hang the strands from. So they're much more secure than if I had just shoved them up into a styrofoam ball. Right, and they could come out. Um, yeah. Yeah, but something like that and the, the tree trunk for the bonsai tree, I used some hardware cloth, quarter-inch hardware cloth, and just got pliers and twisted and twisted and twisted and compacted it to make a, an armature and then covered that with the same type of air-dry clay. And everything I've read online is that when you try to put it particularly over wire, it cracks as it dries. So that was the challenge. And I expected it to crack, and I expected to have to figure out how to patch the cracks and Mm -hmm. and all of that. But um, I tried some different things and figured out a solution, which was basically on both pieces. On both pieces was to apply the clay a little more thinly like in a thin sheet mm-hmm. and apply it loosely so that as it dried it, it could, could shrink. shrink right yeah right and that worked beautifully on both pieces and I added no water to the clay at all because I know you can add water to soften it more but I didn't I just kept it the way it was and and I also attribute our high humidity here to help extend the drying process so that it didn't dry too quickly. And right. And yeah, that's usually when it goes wrong is if it dries too quickly and then it's, yeah, well, that's great. So you yeah. really do take this um, very, um, you've had great success. It sounds like with just figure, cause some people would read like, Oh, this clay cracks and they wouldn't use it. They try, they just be like, right. oh, I'm avoiding this completely. 
I love that you're like, you know what, I'm going to try this. I'm just going to try this, you know, try something new, a new spin on it. And I'm glad, and that's great. And then uh, do you blog about these things or do you um, let, like document your process at all? Is that something that you're in the habit of? I, I need to start blogging again. I used to blog diligently. And, I and did I too. I, did, I think a lot of us, well, blogs are different now. <laughs> I mean, it used to be like a, a daily practice for me or at least several times a week. And now I find that people, I'm more on, I'm in, on Instagram and that's where I kind of exactly. document things that's, because it's quick and a couple of sentences. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah. I, I post a lot of photos on Instagram of my build process, I call it, as I construct things. Um, which started for my friend Michelle, who lives in Australia, who's also an artist. And when I entered Art Prize the first time three years ago, she's the person who um, suggested, well, have you thought about using Instagram to post pictures of your progress? Because I want to see it. <laughs> so I started doing it for her sake. And now I have, I don't know, over 700-something followers. That's great. Um, and the more origami stuff I post, the more followers I get. So I, I should probably post more often than I even do. But um, but it's yeah, great because then I have it. like this photo journal of each project uh, online. Yeah. I know that there are people who say, you know, you should, if you're going to have your Instagram account, it should be like this very carefully curated situation. And I kind of throw all those rules out the window because I document not only <laughs> my projects, I go to art prize and I, you know, I document other people's projects. I'm like, Oh, you should really check this out. And, um, I kind of just do what intrigues me and also documenting mm -hmm. my own, you right. know, my own life. And, uh, so it's really fun, but I think that's the beauty. Now the internet has allowed artists to, a lot of us work, we work in solitude. Like I work late at night when my family's sleeping, I'll be carving blocks and printing or trying to make uh, some piece of fiber art. And, uh, I don't have an, you can't really like, go show it to somebody at two o'clock in the morning, you know, right. that'd be quite rude <laughs> to drive over to a friend's house, you know, and alarm people and be like, Oh no, I was just trying to show you my quilt. You know? <laughs> so what's fun is to be able to take a picture or post it. And someone's probably awake in Australia, you know, who can. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I have origami folding friends on Instagram who I've not met in person, but you know, in Turkey, in South Africa, um, in Ohio, it's like all over the place. And it's kind of funny because they don't know this, but I, I kind of in my head feel like I have this little origami posse over on Instagram oh, that yeah. helps keep me motivated. Oh, yeah. And if um, I... just by seeing what they make, you know, helps keep me motivated to keep pushing myself to experiment and try more things. Oh, it's, it's very uh, inspiring. Instagram is really inspiring. And it's also, I find that I do a lot of troubleshooting. Uh, I'm, you know, self-taught in printmaking. So I've kind of fumbled my way through and I've learned so much from Instagram. I'll have a problem with an ink or I'm having a problem with printing and I, I will put a question out. And uh, there's one guy I interviewed for my podcast. His name's Eric. Uh, and he answers diligently in very detailed. He's, he answers all my questions <laughs> very promptly. That's and I, and I'm just like, geez, I've never met this person. You know, we've never met in uh -huh. person, but yet um, he's kind of like my teacher, you know, <laughs> it's, right. it's really right. fun. Yeah. It's really great. And so, I, I'm curious about what led you, this is kind of shifting gears back to your kind of the map of Stacy going across the country here. So it's from Washington state <laughs> to California couple different, you know, you kind of start exploring California. And then uh, what, at what point did you move to Michigan? 
I moved here in July of 2014. I I was just kind of to the point where I was burnt out in California. It, having grown up in eastern Washington and having had the four seasons there and being in a smaller city than San Jose, because mm-hmm. that's like I live 10 minutes from Apple headquarters. I was right in Silicon Valley. Okay. Um, it, it's just so crowded and hot, which most people love that, you know, the nice warm 80 degree weather all the time and, right. and things like that. <laughs> um, and then it just became prohibitively expensive, I think, to live there unless you are able to earn a very high salary your quality of life suffers because you're just living, you know, and working to survive. It's like you can't actually get ahead if you aren't earning like a software engineer's kind of salary or something in that specific area. And so I thought, no, I'm I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to try something new because the year before that, I had designed a tiny little custom travel trailer, like a teardrop trailer, but mm-hmm. even smaller. <laughs> so I had this four by six foot travel trailer built, um, and it afforded me the opportunity for the very first time in my life to get on the road and drive across the country, which I'd never done. You know, I'd gotten on airplanes and flown to the city or the city and state, but I'd never seen the United States from the road. And it was very transformative. And so then I just, you know, got this urge that I just wanted to be somewhere else that was um, more natural, less suburb, more, you know, quiet, Mm -hmm. kind of beautiful kind of places that I'd seen while I was traveling around. And one thing led to another. The person who I found on a tiny travel trailer forum that I joined, um, who kind of like what you're saying about your Instagram friend, I designed my trailer and put the design online in the forum and asked people to, you know, critique it for me, constructively criticize, because I'd never camped and I'd never traveled with a trailer or an RV before. So like, I'm sure there's things I'm missing. So I put the design up and people very generously popped in and started, you know, making suggestions. And one builder in particular, um, Fred, out here in Michigan, was the only builder on this international forum who could build a trailer lightweight enough using a welded tube steel frame construction instead of wood that my 1994 Acura would be able to tow it because it would weigh, we were hoping, less than 600 pounds Mm -hmm. for the trailer. And um, so when the trailer was done... It was kind of funny because everyone in California said, well, can't he ship it to you? I'm like, why would I have a travel trailer shipped to me? The whole idea is to travel. So I drove out here to come (laughs) get it. And then I, and and I only stayed a few days and never saw anything more than like the inside of his garage and the tractor supply and and some like place we bought some rivets. And then (laughs) I ended up coming back months later and camped at a tiny trailer rally in Wisconsin and then camped the UP that fall, right okay. when the colors were peaking. Oh, that's so And beautiful. I was like, this is amazing. And that's when I learned of Art Prize. And I, my art had been a hidden hobby for, for 17 years at that point. No one really knew I did it. And everyone here in Greenville, after I was done camping, kept saying, well, you know, did Fred take you to Art Prize? And I'm like, what's Art Prize? I had no idea. 
And he finally pulled up the website and showed it to me. And I just, it clicked because I'd always thought if I show my art, I want to show it in a public space, not a gallery, not a museum kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I just had this urge to, um, you know, enter the following year. And then when I was offered a, a venue to be hosted at, um, and I wanted to leave California anyways, I came out and, and came out to Greenville and built my entry here. I wouldn't have to transport it cross country. And by the time Art Prize was over in October, I just was so happy here I stayed. <laughs> <laughs> so did you go back and get your stuff or what happened? I mean, did you intend to, did you know you were going to stay before Art Prize? I, I knew I, I knew I wasn't going to go back to California. So I had yard sales, had, you know, donated, Craigslisted, Goodwill, <laughs> and given away probably 90% of my physical possessions. Wow. So everything fit in the trailer? And so, no, things wouldn't fit in that trailer. Oh, I was going to say, because I'm like such <laughs> a pack rat, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I'd be shaking and crying. <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't I, even fit on my yarn in the trailer. <laughs> no, I ended up buying just a, a few feet of space in like one of the big semi trailers that you see driving across oh, the country. Yeah. yeah. And um, they put your things in first, and then they put up a wall, and then it, so it's kind of at their convenience when their trip for their larger commercial client, you know, um, is going to your area. Then that's when they bring your belongings oh, to so you. Oh, so you don't really know when it's going to show up. And so that, but it all worked out, you know, just fine. <laughs> and um, and it was just quite funny because at Art Price that first year, people would see my, my artist label and it said um, Campbell, California. And they're like, California? You live in California? And I would tell them, well, it's complicated. <laughs> Technically, I'm homeless right now, but I think I'm going to stay in Michigan because I really like it here. And um, it, it was just really funny. So then last year when I went back to Art Prize, a lot of the same people came back since I was at the same venue. And they're like, you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is your third year at Art Prize, correct? Yes. Yes. Which is really fantastic. So, well, I think it's great that you found a place that you – so the the trailer the, – the guy that was helping you with the trailer – he is in Greenville. Is that how you ended up in Greenville? Yes, it is. Like we just became really good friends over the course of the build because it took five months to, for him to build the trailer. Oh wow! Um, and so it was him sending me basically like a once a week email packet of um, photos of everything he had done that week to the to the trailer, and um, usually once a week phone calls to go over you know, details and, and things like that. And then it was quite funny because after the build was over and I came to pick up my trailer, um, and as I was leaving, he, he told me, well, you know, I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a little sad that, um, you know, the build was done because now I won't have to cook anymore. And I said, well, you know, we could just stay friends. <laughs> <laughs> so we did, and we continued to just talk on the phone, you know, a little bit and, and then when I decided I didn't want to stay in California anymore and kind of put it out there on my Facebook page that I, I was going to move, but I wasn't 100% sure where to yet, it was incredible because I had friends on Facebook all across the country. Some were personal friends, like, you know, from high school. Right. Some were 
people I knew from California who would move somewhere. Some were people I knew from the old Dogster website, which was like Friendster, but you pretend to be your dog. It was my introduction <laughs> to being on the internet on a forum. Um, but all in people, wedding industry, it was just crazy. All of a sudden, I had all of these people saying, come stay you know, with me and see if you'd like it here enough to move here. So I had offers from like Alaska and Central Washington and Houston, Texas wow. and Colorado, Parker, Colorado. And, you know, Fred said, you know, you know, you're welcome to come stay here. And a lady in Georgia from the trailer farm. I just I had offers all around the country that I could just come and stay in their guest room or bring my trailer and park on their, you know, acreages and whatever, you know, and, and test at different places. But then, of course, once I was accepted to compete in Art Prize, it's like, well, that's a sign. I, I think I'm supposed to go to Michigan. That's really so great. So I and came here. So did you just land in in Greenville right away, or did you try out some other spaces around the area? No, I just I just came to Greenville because, you know, I, I knew um, one person in the whole state. <laughs> so you just knew and, it was and, Fred. And Fred was the only person that you knew. Fred yeah. was the only person I knew. Well, and his neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I guess technically I knew like five people. Um, and then that first art prize, it was so funny because people would say to me, well, I'm going to, I'm going to vote for you. And I would tell them, well, I appreciate that because I know 12 people now in the state of Michigan and only half of them are even coming to art prize. So that's great. <laughs> right. So you, yeah, you didn't have your own personal delegation to rely on. No, so. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, not at all. Well, the thing about it is I think that, um, just in the time that I've, every time I've gone to see your work, um, and this is the first time, you know, yesterday was the first, actually two days ago was the first time that you were there and I could actually, you know, talk to you. And that was really great. Um, but I am always, um, I always enjoy not only your work, but the way people enjoy your work because people are like, whoa, like when they realize, like they look closely, right. you know, and you said the children are always the most well behaved because the children don't touch. Sometimes the adults no. do, you know. <laughs> But, the adults touch a lot. Yeah, it's quite funny. It's really, yeah, um, it's really, it's funny because I was actually in a gallery yesterday. I was at the Cal Calvin uh, 106 gallery. It's Gallery 106 or 106. I don't know how they, I flip flopped the words, but anyway, Calvin's uh -huh. Gallery on Division. And there's a sign that says don't touch. And this woman's standing right in front of the sign and she's touching the work. Exactly. And I was trying to take a picture at the same time. So I have a picture of a woman touching the work by a sign that says don't touch the work. And I'm just like, oh my word. And people are just kind of shameless about it. But 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 I but I have to say though, and that's not what I'm talking about. I don't enjoy watching people touch your work. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. What I'm saying is I really enjoy how people respond to it because they, they're kind of amazed and astonished and, and like and almost they, they can find it unbelievable that you are folding it's hilarious. this. And, yeah. and then you had a guy... I'm very tempted to like get a GoPro camera or something like that and aim it out the window at the sidewalk <laughs> because <laughs> when people walk up to the window, they're kind of like, it's colorful. What is it? You know? Right. And then they stare at it trying to figure it out. And then the moment the realization hits, this is origami, it's folded pieces of paper, just, their jaws drop and they get all excited and, you know, they turn to the person next to them and you can just tell. And even yesterday I was sitting there inside and they can't see me where I sit next to my exhibit. Right. Um, but there were these two young guys and they sounded like they were lawyers or they worked for a legal firm and they really weren't interacting with me at all. They were talking business to each other. And then at one point, one of them said to me, 
you know, your work is really nice. And, and I said, oh, thank you. And he said, man, people are really enjoying this entry because he was sitting where he could watch all those sidewalk reactions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? So it was yeah. my back to the window. And um, and I catch people, you know, if I look out the window. It, it's just fun how excited people get. Yeah, it really is fun. And, and you, you have a, a great – it's a great space, too, because it's the, that foot traffic – and people aren't really, I mean, because when people go into the art museum, they're like kind of like prepped to see art. And when you're walking right. down the street, it's like this really fun, like they look over and that visual just kind of captures them. So it's, um, and this is your, it's been your spot for three years, right? You've had that for spot. three years, and it has been offered to me for next year. So. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I think I'll just keep going back there. Um, you know, a lot of the visitors they want to see me do well in the competition aspect of art prize. Right. And so they'll encourage me very, very strongly to apply at one of the larger venues further down the street. But I told them, you know what, I visited those venues and I think they're wonderful and, you know, they are what they are, but this suits me, this very small intimate area where I can get to know the visitors. We can actually have conversations. You're not, you know, just forced to walk through quickly because there's a whole pile of people coming up behind right, you. Right, right. Kind of sensation. And so a lot of the art prize visitors, you know, I've become friends with. And, and a lot of the other artists I've become friends with because they can come and we can actually sit there and talk long enough to get to know each other. Right. Instead really of nice. this quick thing, feeling pressure because you have 200 people coming right behind. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm taking the slow route. I, I, I'm, it, it's, just kind of funny because everybody has this impression that, well, you enter art prize because you want to win the, the cash prize. And I'm like, well, of course I would love to win the cash prize. And every year I intend to bring an entry worthy of that. But I'm like, I'm, I'm taking a different path. And these are foundation years for me to, you know, establish myself in Michigan and for people to see my work. And, and I've jokingly said, you know, I may end up being the Susan Lucci of art prize where it takes me 13 or 14 years <laughs> to build up a big enough um, following and fan base. Then that's what it's going to take. But, but I'm happy where I am there. And I'm having so much fun. I've had visitors and employees at the market tell me, you're just having way too much fun. You know, when they see me talking with people and everything. And I, I think I do maybe have the most fun of anybody there. No, I think, well, I think this is, you're right. It suits you. The space suits you. And what happens is people start to um, just, they know to look for you. Like, oh, we can find mm -hmm. Stacy at the market. Yep. And uh, we can also get a sandwich and some cheese and wine if we want to. <laughs> Exactly. You know, I, mean, I mean, it's kind of one-stop shopping. You can see some great art, get some food, you know, recharge, yep. go back on the street. Yeah. So I, well, I think it's fantastic. And I think it, there's something to be said too with not, uh, you're not focused on just trying to win at all costs. You are, you're enjoying the experience of it and the interaction, mm -hmm. the human, just the human side of things where you're connecting, making connections and uh, people, right. people will continue to go to the market to see. In fact, if you aren't at the market, I'm not really sure what people are going to do. The people at the market would have to prepare <laughs> for like some angry crowds because people would be like, wait, where's Stacy? Where's Stacy? Where'd you, know? you go? <laughs> <laughs> well, they would definitely wonder, I think, at this point. Um, but, you know, the market is so popular in itself that 
their regulars have become my regulars. <laughs> and then the the people who just kind of wandered by and saw saw from the sidewalk, you know, and came in the first year, came back last year. And because I sit, it, well, this is a funny thing. The first year, my neighbors told me, because they'd been to Art Price before, oh, the you know, the visitors want to meet the artist. Like, you should go, if you have the time, go and, and sit by your entry, because people would love to meet you. That's just what Art Prize was about. And so I went, and I didn't bring any paper for three days. Oh, my goodness. And for three days, people kept, I'd answer all their questions, but, you know, people would ask me, well, how big is the paper? And I would just hold up my fingers and show them. And and then the third day, it was so funny. This group of women came in, and and one lady in particular said, no, no, this is our prize. We want more. We want as much from the artists as they're willing to share with us. You need to be sitting there demonstrating how you fold these. And so on the fourth day, I started bringing paper, and (laughs) I would spend the whole day there through all of Art Prize and just fold cranes for like seven, eight hours a day and give them away. And um, it was wonderful because the, the second year, so many people came back all excited and told me, I still have the crane you gave me last year. And it was either in everyone's wallet or most people had put it in their kitchen on like their little windowsill in the kitchen. But people came back and actually reported to me how how their crane was doing (laughs) the previous year. I know you do have an Etsy shop. So people can purchase work from you, and that's probably a key, yes. a key thing, a key element as you try to, you know, dedicate more time to, you know, working because you work on this full time now, correct? You're you're doing your. I'm yeah, I'm in the process of making it my full time career. Okay, so, so I I felt it was wise to set up the Etsy shop. <laughs> right. So what types of things yeah. can people purchase? Do you do installations for weddings, or are you just doing um uh, small art installations? What what can people right purchase now? From you? All I'm offering um. And it was actually quite inspired by Art Prize itself. Was that um, initially I thought, well, I don't want to be making individual pieces to sell because it would take time away from creating my mobiles. And there's only so much time in the day that I can fold. But then being at Art Prize, and when I actually put a crane in someone's hand, you know, and they're holding it in the palm of their hand, they just light up. It, it really made me change my mind about that, about not wanting to sell individual pieces because it's like sharing a little piece of it, you know. And so for now, that's what I have on the shop. I have just, you know, you can buy a crane or a frog or a rabbit, or I make these little one-inch by one-inch, half-inch high origami lidded boxes, and I'll put a rabbit with a little tiny origami carrot or like a tiny water lily on top of it. I invented a cellophane, see-through crane, um, last, well, this year, earlier this year. And then I put a tiny, itty-bitty colored crane inside of the body section of it. So it's like a maternity crane. It's like you can see the baby. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. And I'll post links to these things so people can find them. They're just beautiful. And I've been collecting, like, those little tiny glass jars so I can do little diorama things in those. But people want jewelry and people... Every year at Art Price asks me to sell just a short strand that they can hang as a decoration with maybe five cranes on it. So I'll be adding those in by next week. Um, but as far as I think the one thing I would urge people um, about art and just being creative is there were so many years where I didn't create 
you know, even though I was capable of creating, mm-hmm. I, I was just too busy surviving. Um, but I, I think it's important if you have that urge to just find some time, any time, even if it's just a hobby, even if it's just, you know, if you stop and fold origami, you know, once a month, you know, do it or, or paint or draw or whatever it is that you do. And Art Prize, I know, gets a lot of negative publicity and comments on, on the Internet um, from people who are more cynical. <laughs> and I would urge people just ignore all of that and know that it's possible if you enter Art Prize, because you can enter from anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. not just here in Michigan. Right. If you enter it, you can have a really special experience. And the visitors are just incredible. And even the other artists, um, the very first year, I, I felt like they are not my competition. They're like my comrades. Right. I met an artist, Michael, who came by and saw my work and we talked and he had a, an art piece down um, in a bar. And um, <laughs> he was so kind. He said, well, I'm, I'm on my way over, you know, to drop off some of my my business cards, my postcards um, on this display stand that they said I, anyone could use at the Bob, at the big old building. He's like, you want me to take some of yours for you? And I'll leave them there for you. And it just blew me away. You know, like, wait, this is my competition, you know? Um, <laughs> right. But all the other artists have been like that. They're just so kind and so generous and supportive. Now, do you want to try to do even, like, larger installations going forward? I mean, and I don't mean larger in the sense of larger cranes, because I know you like to work small, but do you think that in the future you might try to do something that is, you know, large scale that might take a very, very, you know, even longer amount of time? Or do you like being able to do the the mobiles that are, you know, easy to install and small and you can actually, like, physically handle it with one person? Um, I mean, do you see yourself going to these, you know, any kind of big, gigantic installation, or do you like the small, you know, a thousand? You know, there's something about the um, the smallness of of the scale I work in now, because the mobiles are usually about eight inches in diameter, mm-hmm. six to eight inches in diameter, and between two and maybe three feet high. Um, there's something about that very diminutive scale that is part of what makes it special I think I could certainly do larger pieces using small elements but I suspect I don't know this because I've never even tried to do that but I suspect some of kind of the magic would be lost um, in doing that so I, I probably won't unless I become very inspired to do something very specific mm-hmm. but like at this moment coming right off the heels of, of my final construction for, for this particular series. Um, I like in my head, I see this picture of, you know, like a wall just with shelves on it and doing maybe several different types of the bonsai trees, like not even doing the cranes, just doing bonsai tree sculptures, um, using origami for the flowers. Oh, wow. Yeah. That would be beautiful. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I may vary off and do something like that, but as far as a larger project goes, what I've really been wanting to do and, and has been funny at Art Price the last few years is on my artist label is where they put if your artwork is for sale and, you know, I guess 
what your price is, or I'm not even sure what it I says. Think, if yeah, you I think you can list. I think you can list it. I don't know if you have to list a price, but I think you can just so people can inquire. And uh, you right. can say yes, you want. But to mine is never for sale. <laughs> <laughs> so people, people have actually commented to me and told me this is the first piece of work we've seen that isn't for sale. Why are so you, you selling it? What do you what do, do with you the pieces? Yeah, it? what do you do with the pieces if you don't sell them? Do you just have them displayed in your house, or what do you do? No, because I I don't have enough space and um, not enough display cases to protect them. <laughs> but right now, again, it's like part of my bigger picture, and and this being my foundation process was I wanted to accumulate enough sets that I could put them together and then go outside of Art Prize and find a, a public space and show them as a collection. So like now I have 11 finished mobiles, all depicting different elements of Japanese culture. Right. And I like to show them as a group all together instead of four this year, four that year, three this year. That would um, be excellent. So, that, so there's a good yeah, reason so why there's a good picture. reason why you haven't sold them. No, I think that's yeah. yeah there's a good reason, yeah. and that and you could sell someday them, I'll, so. I'll be ready to let them go. Yeah, yeah but no. not just yet. Well, especially when it takes you months to create one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> it's so I can understand. I mean, if you, I guess if you got a you know really great price, but the thing about it is your time is your most valuable asset really for any of us. That's our time is worth so much and it's hard to put right. a value on that. I'm like 11 months yeah. of your time. You know, so, well, so. And, and even if I were to sell them, I, you know, there's this part of me that just, even if a private collector wanted to buy one, um, I'd probably be willing to sell it because I want to make this my career and I need right. to earn money. But, you know, in my heart, I, I would want whoever buys it to, put it into a public space, you know, whether that's a restaurant or a hotel, but just somewhere where people get to see it. Right. So maybe the everyday people, you know, so any of those folks, maybe people that are at, um, yeah, people, if so, if someone's listening out there and has the means and the ability to put it in a space where it can be enjoyed by, you know, thousands of people, the public get in touch with Stacey. I love that people stumble (laughs) upon it the way they do at, at Art Prize. Yeah. I, I, I love that, that it can just surprise people in the everyday course of their life. They don't have to, you know, drive to a gallery or drive to a museum. And it's not that I have anything against galleries or museums. I enjoy going to them myself. But um, not everybody gets to but go. There's just something special about being surprised by it where you least expect to see something like that. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I love your work. I can't wait to see what next year what you're what you do next year and um you know and I'll be back I I, maybe what I'll try to do is I'll try to fold a crane and I'll bring it in you can critique it and tell me uh, I'm not gonna fold it it won't be small it will be a six inch square um well if you come in uh, we can fold one together too that actually is the smartest because I do teach people when when it's not too crowded I'll sit down and, and actually teach people um of all ages it's really fun yeah, well, I should bring some big yeah. paper because I looked in your paper. You you only have small paper, <laughs> so I'll bring bigger paper. <laughs> okay. okay. That All right. Sounds well. good. All right. I guess this is the point in the podcast where I'm like, psych, this is not the end of the show. Oh, no. I called Stacy back to get more information. Um, and this was basically a situation where Stacy was on her way to Art Prize when we recorded the first part she was at home and she had to leave to go make it to art prize on time and I didn't want to hold her up and so as soon as we hung up uh from the yeah the interview was over I thought oh man 
I didn't ask her about this really super awesome studio that she's building on her property. And I just thought, wow, that's kind of a major omission on my part that I didn't even ask the question. So I saw her at ArtPrize and we made arrangements to talk again. And so that is what you're going to hear now. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. You're going to have the ultimate workspace soon, it sounds like. I am. To date, I've been working off a two-by-three-foot coffee table in the living room for the past three years. Oh, my. And so I'm very, very excited to have a, a dedicated workspace where it's it's going to be fairly small. It's, it's like 16 feet wide by 12 feet deep, and then the work area is split into two eight-by-twelve sections. So one 8 by 12 section to the left of the interior will just be completely empty so that I can do whatever I need to do there, like photograph my work or um, swing up a drop leaf kind of table to set up a sewing machine. Or if mm-hmm. I wanted to paint again, I could put up an easel. I can just use that space at will for whatever. The the other side, though, is going to be a dedicated work area, like my actual work studio area to do all of my origami, my folding my cutting my paper, my hanging the strands of whatever I'm making. Um, and the other wonderful thing is all of my supplies will be in one place because mm-hmm. right now they're divided between two different rooms in the upstairs of the house and down in the basement. So when I need something, it's like, oh, where is it? <laughs> so I have right, to go right. find it. <laughs> now, I'm very intrigued. As someone who fills every single open space within seconds, I seem to just open a bag and I've filled the space for you to have a space that's going to remain pretty much empty, you know, in between your projects. Is that going to be hard for you or are you more of a minimalist in your approach? No, I I have a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot of stuff, but my, you know, the tiny trailer we talked about earlier, um, is kind of a stepping stone into the design of the studio because the trailer is only four feet by six feet. Right. And I was able to design it in a way to have enough storage space and living space inside of it that you know, I lived out of it for six months, no problem. Um, and I can travel out of it, no problem. Have all my, you know, clothing, my toiletries, my food, my cookware, everything pretty much can fit in there. So I had to apply the same logic to the studio. So the reason half of the studio is going to be completely empty with only like drop leaf work tables that I can um, tuck away when they're not needed is because the work side of the studio that will be 8 by 12 feet is going to be on an elevated platform that's 18 inches high. And that's going to give me basically 8 by 12 feet of storage with pull-out drawers that are 18 inches high and 8 feet long on casters oh, awesome. that I can roll out from under the platform. So I'll be able to store things under my workspace and then have a small storage closet above the platform that I, I haven't quite decided yet if I'm going to have it go from the floor of the platform all the way to the ceiling, or I might just take it halfway up so that I could display some of my, my pieces and have a little display shelf kind of a thing. Um, and so that's, that's the reason also for wanting the empty spaces. If there's nothing built in and there's no standing furniture, then if I need to roll out one of those storage drawers all the way to eight feet, there'll be room to do that. And I can maximize my under storage. Um, by the same token, the work area is going to be approximately eight by, by probably nine feet 
in space in diameter. And so to maximize the usage there, I'm not going to have traditional Western furniture. Um, even now when I sit and work at the coffee table, I sit on the couch as if I'm sitting on the floor. And even when I eat at the dining table, I sit on the dining chair as if I'm sitting on the floor. I just tuck my feet up under me or next to me or in front of me. And so I thought, why have a chair? Like just a single work chair is going to take up so much space in that small of an area. So where the under storage is under my work table, we're going to leave a footwell, kind of like what you would see in a Japanese restaurant where they have the tatami room and you can sit at floor level at the dining table, or if you need to drop your legs and, you know, make that 90-degree bend with your knees, you have that option to do it. So by doing doing that type of a design, I eliminate the need for having an actual chair while I'm working, saving a lot of space. If you want to talk a little bit about what inspired the whole design, besides the, the fact that you've you've looked at just the way your your you know your your life habits, you know you're used to um, kind of getting by without having to have all kinds of furniture, and um, you're really minimizing your storage. But I know the exterior is kind of a unique design as well. And so if you can describe how this will look, is this does it, it's a rectangle construction? Like from the outside, it's going to look like a rectangle space. Is that? Um, it's more of a square from the outside. Because since we're having a foundation poured and um, going through all the trouble of building the studio, one thing that I kind of desperately needed since moving here to Michigan is a screen porch. Mm, Because I'm I'm that person who, you know, if there's a dozen people outside, I'm the one who gets bit by mosquitoes 20 times in one night. Oh, yeah, that's me too. Yeah. so I'm just the mosquito magnet and, and the black flies and the deer flies and the seams. It's like everyone loves to bite me and make me itch. And so <laughs> Fred suggested we should do a screen porch on the front, which at first I was kind of resistant to because I just wanted to keep the whole project very small and simple. Um, but he 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 really insisted that, that I, I should do that. And so that's what we're doing. So there'll be a 10 by 16 foot screen porch right on the face of the building. So it makes the foundation and the roof line and everything more square shaped, but the work studio area is rectangular. Exactly what you said. And is this right um, by your house then? Is this right on the property with your house? It's a stone's throw from the house. Yeah. It's on the property, but not right next to the house. Like someone who came and saw the build site um, was like, why are you having it so far away? You know, from, from the house. Like they thought I would want it closer like, well, no, I, I want it to be further away so that it's it's separate, you know, so that when I go in there, I can focus on work and things like the phone ringing in the house or company dropping by won't um, distract me from what I'm trying to get done. Um, because if I had, if we had done an addition onto the house and then company came by, I, I would just feel compelled to, you know, step out and say hello and, you know, be sociable and things like that. But having it far enough away from the house, I, I really won't feel that way unless somebody actually walks all the way out to it. Right, um, right. To go back to your other question, what happened was I just, I've never been to Japan, but I read enough about Japan to understand that people there tend to live in very small spaces out of necessity just because of the density of population and, and the, you know, they live on islands, so you, you can only have so much sprawl. Um, so I went very early on in this process onto Pinterest 
and I looked for storage ideas and organization ideas and kind of dropped the word Japanese in with some of these searches on Pinterest and discovered that the Japanese do have some unique approaches to creating more storage. And, and that's how I came up with the idea of the understorage for the platform. Um, because it's, it appears to be a fairly common practice there because of the small living spaces. And somewhere in that search, I'm not exactly sure when or where or what word I searched, I came upon this exterior, um, like the siting treatment technique called Shosugiban that is done in Japan. It has been done there for decades, I don't know, maybe centuries even, um, where they take wood and they burn it with an actual flame. Wow. And then they scrape off the charred wood with, um, they rinse it with water and a brush. In some cases, not all cases, sometimes they just burn the wood and put it up on the building. So it has like, um, it's often referred to as an alligator texture where mm-hmm. the charred wood is all cracked, like what you'd see in a campfire in the yeah. morning kind of effect. Um, but the video I saw, the, the man burned the wood and then he rinsed it with water and a hose and used a metal brush and scrubbed all of the charred wood off, let it dry. Then he painted it, coated the board with tongue oil and then burned it again. And then you rub a little more oil on the wood one last time. And so it does several things. It makes the wood more resistant to fire because it's already been burned, um, to moisture, and to insects. Wow. But what I loved about it most was just the way it looked. Yeah. Because it darkens the wood, yet it draws out the texture of the, the grain of the wood if you brush that charred part off. And so I showed the video to Fred, kind of expecting him to just say, that's crazy that's just way too labor intensive <laughs> but maybe because he's a designer and a builder and has a creative streak he he was very intrigued by it and and at one point I said to him you know I could be just as happy with vinyl siding that matches the house <laughs> but he wanted to pursue doing this burnt cedar wood technique and so um, he's burned some of the wood and a friend of his uh, Oscar has come over quite a bit and he's become our our um, specialist at, at treating the wood for us. That's great. And so once, yeah, and once we got some of it up, it was really neat to see because the wood has so much character that was not anticipated, meaning in the, in the sunlight, it has an almost metallic gold sheen, metallic sheen to the finish. And you see every, you know, the knot, the details and the knots in the wood and all the grains markings but if it's shady or you know at dusk or if there's just no direct sunlight hitting it the wood completely changes character and it's dark it looks more brown which will fade to gray over time the way cedar would naturally fade to gray Mm -hmm. um and so the building looks different in different light it's it's quite interesting and and i honestly can't decide which way i like it better so it's kind of neat that you get these varying effects. So did you have any idea that, you know, you guys would end up um, being collaborators beyond this trailer? Did you have any inkling of that when you first started communicating? Oh, gosh, no, no. You know, I was living in California. It's like I've never even been 
east of the Rockies you know, <laughs> by car. I, I actually never was even barely west of the Rockies by car. Um, I'd only ever driven from Washington through Oregon to California or, or back, vice versa. Um, so, no, even the thought of moving to the Midwest was never, you know, on my radar. I d- didn't see that coming and, and coming out here for Art Prize and then having things just work out well enough for me to stay. Um, I think initially Fred just didn't anticipate I would stay. I think he just thought I'd come out and do my little Art Prize thing and then be bored living out here in the countryside after coming from the Bay Area. Um, but it took about a year, I think, before one day he was watching me sitting folding grains, you know, on a rainy day, I think. And he was like, you really actually are happy, aren't you? <laughs> Just <laughs> sitting there folding paper. I'm like, I, I am. <laughs> it's like, I can really be creative here. And, and I just feel like if I can create the the three entries that I put into Art Prize will have three years on this tiny little coffee table. What am I going to be able to do once I have this larger space to work in? I'm tickled at the thought of how much easier that will be next year than it has been for the past three years. Well, and I think you're, you're building your following too. You're going to have groupies next year, I think. Because, <laughs> I mean, you already kind of do. I mean, these people come bearing gifts. They, they come with folded paper, you know, <laughs> Yeah, well, this year I, I received, I haven't counted yet, but I think well over 30 origami models wow. people made with me. And, and the first year I received a book, somebody who had written a, a, an inspirational book brought me a signed copy of this book, which was really thoughtful. And um, and then another person gifted me this really beautiful necklace that reminded them of my my folding. So that was really special. It's like Christmas in September. And so you're planning to go back to the same venue. It sounds like I am. Um, but next year they, they're renovating. They took over the space next door to their market and deli and they're moving the, the deli and the sandwich counter. Okay. It's very popular. And all the seating, which is where I'm kind of tucked away behind all of the seating. So, like, at lunchtime and it gets crowded, I can't actually get up. It's like I'm kind of trapped up by the window (laughs) at this point. But they're moving all of that into the new space they're renovating next door. And the neat thing is the window next door is, I think, slightly taller and definitely longer. It's wider. Oh, yeah. And unobstructed. And they've offered me that window for next year. So I'll be able to do still miniature but my my mobiles can be a little more expansive horizontally because there will be more space. To well, that's exciting. That. That's really exciting. So, yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think as, as your presence, you know, people have, have found you, you know, and people come back year after year, but I think as more and more people discover what you're doing, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because I would love to see you on a list, my friend. Um. <laughs> I would too. Well, I told people this year I'm going to make a very considered effort to um, do more of a sidewalk display next year so that all the people who walk down Monroe Center Northwest, a lot of people glance over and, and see my entry through the window, but a lot of people walk by just looking forward, so they don't even realize they've walked past Right, right. So I need to do more. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I, there's a lot more I can do to help people realize I'm there. 
But sounds and like I'm, the, the I'm big, working on ways to do that. The big window will help. And when you put uh, when you're talking about doing a sidewalk uh, display, would you use something that's waterproof, or how would you how would you do that with paper? Do you think you would? Fold I will something? have to figure out how to waterproof it. I'm thinking maybe even doing one or two models um, that are maybe a big crane and a big frog that are about two feet in diameter that could be hung or somehow displayed out there on the sidewalk outside the window. Um, and I would have to figure out how to waterproof them. Um, and then just more signage out front, too, because mm-hmm. the, the funniest thing about this year, and, and well, actually every year, really, is how many people will come inside and get right up next to the entry, and then they'll exclaim, oh, it's paper, because they couldn't figure out what they were looking at. And what everybody pretty much says is they thought they were beads, like plastic or glass beads. Oh, wow. Because they're too uniform. So it looks like a bead so of curtain. Tiny. You know, right. they're so, beads. so tiny. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I need to make it more apparent to people what it is they're looking at from the sidewalk for them to actually be able to appreciate the amount of labor that I put into my Right, beads. right. Uh, the creativity of, of working with paper in a way that most people never considered that you could fold origami that small, even if they knew you could fold paper into shapes. So the tininess of it is what catches a lot of people off guard. Well, is there anything that you want people to know about, um, maybe for those who are interested in, you know, a lot of us dream of building our own you know, tiny studios out back where it's detached from our house and we can kind of separate the two worlds we exist in. Is there anything that you wish you would have known before you started this project? Probably not. Well, (laughs) You didn't want to know how hard it was going to be. It's about the the design itself, but the one really good piece of advice I can share with people, and it might sound like I'm being kind of sarcastic or joking, but I'm not, is to consider where you live. Because by moving to Michigan, where the cost of living is much more reasonable than Silicon Valley, where I left in California, I was quite shocked um, recently, well into the, the construction of the art studio, I spoke to someone I know who still lives in California in the same county I used to live in, in Santa Clara County. And they're looking at having a a small little space built um, either on, like, their property where they live in Santa Clara County or on a piece of acreage they own in a different county in Northern California. And they were asking me, what is the cost of my studio going to be? And at that point, I wasn't even quite sure what the final cost would be, so I kind of hesitated in answering them. And they said, well, for instance, how much is your building permit? And I said, well, actually... I didn't have to get a building permit. Um, I had to get a zoning permit. And the zoning person gave us a variance on the building permit because my actual studio space is only 190-something square feet, so it falls within the 200-foot maximum before you need a, a building permit. Since the screen porch is just a screen porch and, the, you know, it's not enclosed or anything and, and because um, there's no plumbing they clearly could see we're not using it as a living quarters kind of situation. He he gave us the variance on it. So my zoning permit was $30. And the person I know in California sounded kind of sick when they told me that if I had tried to build the exact same studio in Santa Clara County, 
it would be a minimum $21,000 for the what? building permit. Wait, wait, wait. 21000 for just the permit? 21000 for just the permit. Yeah, and none of, I couldn't afford to do that. Oh, my word. Not many people could afford to. I certainly couldn't have afforded to pursue my art as a career and build a studio had I stayed in California. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, for, in Michigan, you can have... You can have the whole studio built for twenty. I for mean, less that's, than that's, the building oh permit. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow. Um, and and for them, where they're actually going to build, it it will be slightly larger than what I'm building here, and it has plumbing and everything. It's for living in, um, but their their permit is going to be forty thousand dollars. Oh my goodness! Just for the permit. So wow, I would not encourage everybody to move to Michigan because you can get a thirty dollars zoning permit. But just if it's something you're truly serious about doing, right. take that into consideration. What is the actual cost of living and what is the cost to build something like this in one county even versus another county within the same state? It can probably be wildly different, I would imagine. So that's definitely something that brought this within reach for mm-hmm. me yeah. is having relocated to somewhere with a reasonable cost of living. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you and um, I will, uh, I, I'll keep following along with the process on, on Instagram. Thank you, Jennifer. All right. So this is really the end of the interview with Stacy <laughs> for real. Uh, I just want to thank Stacy for coming on the show and telling her story. I really enjoyed hearing about her adventures and her artwork If you are curious about her work, head over to craftsanity.com. I have links to her Instagram feed and her website and also her Etsy shop. You can purchase her work. These are delicate little pieces that are so delightful. And she has just some really beautiful gifts that she's offering in her Etsy shop. So you can head over there and check it out. I want to take a moment once again to thank... Andy from PlumDeluxe.com for sponsoring the show. And I just want to encourage you folks, any all you tea lovers out there, to uh, give his organic loose leaf tea blends a try. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of starting to think about gifts for the coming year. And if you have any tea lovers on your list, that Tea of the Month Club would be a really nice gift for a person who drinks tea on a daily basis. So uh, you might want to consider that. You can find more information over at PlumDeluxe.com. And I'm going to do a post about Andy's tea in the coming days. So look for that. I also want to encourage those of you who are not currently on the Craft Sanity mailing list to head over to the the blog, craftsanity.com, and click the link to sign up for the mailing list because I'm going to be putting out some coupon codes or it's going to be a sale. I haven't decided exactly how I'm going to do this, but I'll be announcing my Etsy shop sale through the the newsletter. And um, I'm basically looking to have a big sale going throughout November. And why am I doing this? Well, I've been reorganizing my garage and my basement studio, and I'm kind of reconfiguring basically every room in my house. And this is unlike previous attempts where I just move things from one room to the other and don't really throw anything away or recycle or organize. It's kind of surface, not really trying kind of stuff. I'm actually really trying now. And usually when I really try it stuff, I I usually get it done and I am getting it done, folks. So I am clearing out space, reorganizing, trying to streamline things. And I'm also planning to use that momentum to just kind of put some new energy into my business. And I would like to help people get 
their holiday shopping done at a reasonable pace uh, early. And then I know a lot of us who run handmade shops, sometimes we're really stressed out right before the holidays because we're still trying to fill orders. Well, I'm hoping to do a bulk of my shipping and selling in November and then um, early December, I'll just, you know, shut down the shop for a bit and uh, really get a chance to kind of focus on my family and loved ones and making last minute gifts that, you know, I want to do without having to stress about last minute holiday orders. And I'm also looking to just kind of clear out space. So um, I have a big inventory of looms that I am working on preparing for the sale. So I am uh, excited to move those out. I also have on YouTube videos about how to weave out the single strand weaving. And I haven't really pushed those videos because people will contact me and be like, I don't really know how to to do that. And it's on my, so I'm going to do a better job of kind of getting that message out to, to all of you who are interested in that. So if you're curious about how did, how does she even weave on those looms? I have free videos. And the cool thing is you can apply the technique to the standard potholder loom that you might own just from a plastic or metal one that you might have kicking around your house. So you definitely don't have to buy one of my looms to benefit from that video. So I encourage you to check it out. Um, I love teaching people how to weave. So if you head over to the Craft Sanity YouTube channel, you can find the videos there and I will put some links on my website as well. So I'll try to make those easier for you folks to find. Once again, I want to thank my Patreon sponsors for keeping the show going. I will be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, drink lots of tea and Craft Sanity, my friends. It works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at CraftSanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at CraftSanity.etsy.com. Same time next week.